This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Tim Prady will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. Today, it is June 27th. We'll be on a hiatus next week, obviously, with the 4th of July weekend. Um, so, yeah, last one before the 4th. Today, you know, we're early morning, so market's still in flux. Dow's up 150 points right now. So the first win in seven sessions, we've seen a little bit of a downtick in the market so far. Tim, let's open it up. Yeah, you have had a little bit of a downtick. I'm not sure. You know, sometimes during the quiet, when you when you have a market like this that's somewhat dependent on buybacks, uh, you get into the quiet period and you get to into the buyback blackout period and you can get a little less buying pressure. As you said, today, we're kind of ripping back up. I, I don't have a reason for it. You know, the the economic data was a little stronger this morning. You know, you've had this back and forth between hard data and soft data. Like the ISMs, especially the manufacturing ISMs, have been incredibly weak. All the different Fed survey areas that have come out recently, Dallas was terrible, Richmond, New York, Philly. And then you get industrial production, and it's pretty strong. Now, I think there's some catch-up on the industrial production side from autos. You know, you're still... You're still catching up uh, from the pandemic and the shortages and inventory shortages on autos. Uh, but I think that's probably starting to come to an end and you're starting to see some weakness in used car prices. But I digress. Economic data has overall been strong enough that July hike is getting solidly priced in. And now the market is going to have to start thinking about, all right, is the economic data going to stay strong enough all the way into September that now the Fed's going to be hiking again? And that's a possibility. You know, all the cuts now for the Fed have been pushed out to next year, where seven cuts are priced in, but priced in from a higher level. So you'd be going from 550 to 375 in 24 if it goes to plan. I kind of remain in that higher for longer. I don't know if the Fed will hike in September, but I think the Fed is going to have a very high bar for a very bad economy before they start cutting rates. I think you're going to have to be shedding a bunch of jobs. And the last thing I'll say on the job side with the economic data is the most interesting data is this continuing, not the both the continuing claims and the initial claims. Initial claims have really moved up. Uh, you know, we were running around 190, 200 for a while, and we've we've moved up hard here to 260, and we've confirmed it a couple weeks in a row. The thing is, continuing claims don't really move up. So the argument is, well, people are obviously easily able to find jobs, but you don't know the the composition of that. Maybe it's just people rolling off and no longer getting uh, benefits. So I'd say the the employment data is starting to soften. Temp is really starting to soften. That should be a leading indicator. But again, it's been the leading indicators and the soft data that's been really weak. And then it's been more hard data uh, and coincident indicators and lagging indicators that have been strong. And the result has been Market's been strong, you know, the economy has brought, been strong enough for corporate profits to hold up, uh, and it's been strong enough to keep the Fed tightening. So, you know, and Luke, we've got all these rate hikes. What we're seeing right now regionally is North America has been leading in corporate defaults. Uh, so far, there's been 41 in the U.S. The rates rose in May as well. So, you know, let, let's talk about that whole dynamic. I mean, corporate defaults are going to move up when rates go up. There are some companies that are just not going to be economic at higher interest rates. And, you know, this is, I repeat myself badly, but, you know, this is the long and variable lags. It takes a while 
for everybody's term loans to come due. And it takes a long time for companies to realize that a new higher level of interest rates that aren't coming in anytime soon, that they just aren't going to be able to make it. And you're going to have defaults. You are just structurally going to have defaults. I don't think it really tells us, though, that you know, this is the beginning of some kind of great financial crisis or that this, you know, this is just like subprime was in 06 and 07. I don't think it's that at all. I just think that in any any cycle where you raise interest rates by 500 and eventually probably 550 basis points in a short period of time, there are going to be companies that didn't have termed out debt that were marginally existing as it was that are going to get washed out. But I, I wouldn't take it as too much of a leading indicator other than the predictable outcome of a of a rate hiking cycle. Not to say it won't continue, but it's not to say that it's going to get out of hand. No. And I mean, we saw home prices rise for the third straight month. Yep. The new numbers from April. And what what's actually crazy is it didn't seem too long ago that we we're talking about a textile off and the fact that, you know, interest rates are causing fiscal discipline. I'm going to see layoffs. You're going to see less R&D. Well, valuations right now in tech are just astronomical. Um, some of the companies already just because I, I found it pretty wild, but Apple's market cap is as large as France's GDP. Microsoft is larger than Italy. Alphabet is as big as Mexico and Tesla is bigger than Taiwan. So that just <laughs> shows you really the state of, you know, the state of the valuations right now. I mean, I think you could chalk that up to two things. One is that there, you know, nobody, there's been no antitrust law enforcement forever. So Microsoft mm -hmm. has been able to buy whoever the hell they want to buy. Google's been able to buy whoever they wanted to buy. So that's part of it, but that's not really the case necessarily for, for Apple and for Tesla. But multiples have gotten wild. I mean, Apple's at 30 times. Microsoft's at 34 times. I'm talking trailing 12 months. I don't know even know what Tesla's multiple is, but it's stupid. You know, I mean, you've had, you know, there's actually a great Fed paper that was out by a guy named Michael uh, Smolianski, and he's writing about how much uh, corporate profits have been driven by lower taxes and by lower cost of capital. And then the multiples have been driven by lower risk-free rate. So none of those things are going to be the case going forward. Seems very unlikely to me that we're going to have lower corporate taxes five years from now or 10 years from now. Seems unlikely to me that in a world, as, you know, which is our kind of core theme, that we've got sticky structural inflation via labor, that you're going to have lower interest rates and financing costs going forward and that you'll have a, a lower risk-free rate. So none of those things are tailwinds. So we've had kind of crazy wild multiple expansion look the, the the overall these big companies have not see their earnings estimates going higher this whole rally that we've seen from the beginning of the year and don't don't forget these these companies all got smoked last year but this whole rally back that we've seen in some cases with these names to new highs has been all multiple expansion and one would think that with durable long durable cash flows which is how you look at high growth tech companies that higher interest rates would mean lower multiples. That's structurally how you build a discounted cash flow, that you have to assume higher interest rates means, you know, you have less terminal growth in the out years. So, you know, it's a head scratcher to me. Maybe AI changes the world. Remember, I wrote that essay about maybe Kathy's right. Maybe we have massive AI-driven productivity booms, but will we not have any creative destruction? Will there not be winners and losers? I mean, I look at the way these companies' multiples have expanded 
at a time when, you know, the the cloud businesses of Azure, AWS for Amazon and Azure for Microsoft, when when the rate of growth of those core growth businesses, the cloud businesses for those guys has gotten cut in half. So I don't know. Look, it's a long rambling way of saying I don't understand why there's been so much multiple expansion, but there has been. And I think it creates a terrible risk reward from inve- for investors from here. Well, yeah, and you mentioned the fact of corporate profits. We've already seen, obviously, kind of an international push to crack down on the islands of the world, have effective minimum rates. But then also within the United States, I mean, it's needless to say, we'll at least have an exercise in cutting loopholes. You know, if effective rate was at 1.16%, you have guys paying 35 and guys paying zero. Yep. So there's going to be definitely a push towards that as well. It's just, I I think the forward-looking environment on that is going to be a lot different. I mean, it ain't going to be easy. It won't be easy. But, you know, there's going to be a battle. Is it 24, I think, that the Trump tax cuts, some of the Trump tax cuts will come up to sunset? And if we're running $2 trillion uh, deficit still, as I suspect we will be in 2024, is it going to be easy for the Republican Party to be the party of, you know, fiscal rectitude and at the same time, you know, pushing tax cuts that the CBO are going to score to be, you know, very much increasing to long-term deficits and long-term debt. Absolutely. So, I mean, where, where do you think right now, in terms of inflation, the BIS had a paper that came out that we're roughly halfway through the fight against inflation. They mentioned the fact that Norway and Britain recently rose rates, although they seem to think that a lot more needs to be done. And I think the the term was inflation psychology, just warning mm-hmm. us into fall yeah. into a new yeah. normal. Yeah. So let's, yeah, let's that, talk about I, that paper. I mean, that's the that's yeah. always the concern with economists, right? Yeah. That it gets yeah. entrenched, that the the inflation psychology gets entrenched. That's what people are talking about when they talk about a wage price spiral, that you get entrenched expectations of wage increases. The BIS paper, though, I think the main point it made is – Look, everybody, the world is discounting that inflation is going to go up and come down really fast. And by the way, that's what history has told us, that when inflation has spiked up over the last 40 years, it's come down really, really fast. Well, two things drove uh, much of, of this inflation. It was commodities. It was it was the ability to get hard goods products, including commodities. And then it was supply chains. So you had this huge goods inflation. Uh, well, that is mostly gone. The supply chains, I mentioned autos e- earlier, but the supply chain issues are mostly behind us. Like freight rates are are through the floor. And then commodities have been really, really weak. I mean, the commo- if, if you just showed me a chart of commodities a year ago and said, you know, where are global economies going to be? I'd say really very weak if that's what oil looks like and if that's what Dr. Copper looks like. But the argument that they make is that's only half of it because this economy, the more and more we get, and they're talking about the US, but it really is striking. I read that paper. It really is striking about how similar the issues are across the globe in terms of the worker shortage, in terms of having more and more service-oriented economies that where there's the inflation is driven by labor. And it stands to reason, it's pretty intuitive, that commodity prices are going to fall quickly when demand fades away, but the persistence of demand in services stay higher, and so will the wage gains. So those and the wage expectations. And what the BIS is saying is all of the central banks across the world have to stay vigilant to make sure they break the back 
of these wage psychological expectations. And they think that that's going to be hard and they're going to have to stay higher for longer, to repeat our central mantra. So this weekend, well, Saturday in particular, was definitely a uh, a turn of events. Yeah. I was watching the news this morning based off the Twitter feed on Friday. And, you know, I thought my Saturday was going to be watching the Civil War play out. And it yeah. was for four or five hours Oils obviously paired some of their gains uh, yesterday. There's a little bit more sense of calm, but I mean, I wonder what the long-term ramifications are in the region, Eastern Europe, and in Russia in particular, that we had a potential coup and Prigozhin and his Wagner forces got as far as 150 kilometers or so from Moscow before they called it off. Yeah, that was wild. I mean, I had the same experience from you. We were down the beach and we were sitting in the living room watching, you know, watching the news as it unfolded. And I don't know, maybe it's wrong to say, but I was, you know, because Prigozhin is more of a psycho, it seems, than even Putin is. But I was disappointed when basically he said, okay, I'm just going to go to Belarus and take a bunch of money and we'll we'll call this off for now. But I don't know, I'd, I'd be interested to hear what you think. But clearly Putin is weaker than the world thought he was. You know, it's when you're a dictator and, and the loyalty of the police forces and the military becomes ambiguous, uh, you know. Heavy is the yeah. heavy is the head that wears the crown. So you know, look, what do I think it means for markets and for inflation? Russia and the other rogue states of Venezuela and Venezuela and Iran have been filling a lot of the hole that the Saudis have created, and even even much more tight U.S. production have created. The Russians are not reinvesting. They are not, you know, thoughtfully and assiduously reinvesting in their resource. They need the cash. They're burning the cash. And I just think that ultimately a more unstable Russia means more unstable supplies out of a very important supplier. You know, if the oil market is roughly 100 million barrels a day, I don't know off the top of my head what Russia is, but it's six, seven, eight, something like that. I mean, it's a very substantial number. And if you get a meaningful interruption to that supply, that's going to change the dynamics in the oil markets in a hurry. Now, as we talked about, it was like this thing was on and then it was over. But I think anything that I've read suggests that it's still clear that maybe this is just the first battle in what is going to be a long, epic weakening of Putin's power structure. Yeah. In 2016, Turkey had a massive coup that was shut down and Erdogan's been able to establish himself and, you know, was recently reelected. This looks a little bit different. I mean, it, it might play out the same way, but when Wagner crossed the border into Rostov, I'm done. You know, there's people who are cheering for him loudly. Does that mean there's a holistic demand for revolution in Russia? Not necessarily, but it shows that maybe a lot of the, you know, provinces and a lot of people are apathetic at best towards Putin's rule. So maybe he doesn't have as grip on the country as we thought he did. I mean, it could be an emperor has no clothes situation. Yeah. And obviously most of the mil- a lot of the militaries in Ukraine, which is allowed for such a quick march. So the know. whole thing is just, I mean, you just think of the collapse of Russia from, you know, I remember being at Morgan Stanley in the mid nineties and we, they created a ETF for Russia and Barton Biggs came and talked about kind of the rich history of of a deeply educated people and a society that coming out of communism could really have the opportunity to be a power, an intellectual power and a technological power in the world. And, 
you look at that now more than 20 years later, and it really is sad at what's become. I mean, the brain drain that has come out of Russia. I mean, the the state of the military where, you, you know, it just sounds like you have really rampant alcoholism and rampant corruption. I read a story the other day about a ship captain who sold the brass propellers on his boat and replaced them with some cheaper steel ones, pocketed the money. Like it's, but it, you know, Jimmy Rogers wrote about this. Jimmy Rogers wrote a book years ago, and I'm not meaning to offend Russians when I say this. I'm talking about kind of the political cultural state, but he just kind of called it a, a society that would always have trouble embracing capitalism because there's too much of a might makes right mentality that probably has been built over a century of communism. But it's sad to see where the Russian state is, and it's hard to imagine it goes per- particularly well from here. Yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, if we talk decades in the future, history always changes, but we may see the Soviet Union as just an extension of the Russian Empire. And then this just reverts to that. So it will just be a window in time where it was just same, same, but different name, um, functionally. Yeah. And you you mentioned, you know, the brain drain and the vast majority of these Im- immigrants are not affiliated with the United Russia Party. So they're losing, you know, grad students and PhDs uh, yeah. who are more liberally minded. So what's that mean? Broadly, that's that's an issue, obviously. Yeah. And Canada and Australia are going to get them. We're not going to get them. No. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, the labor uh, movement. Axios just had a recent article kind of discussing that it really ties into IMF's paper too, talking about inflation in which 45% of inflation to date is due to higher corporate profits. Mm-hmm. There's obviously a juxtaposition between labor and capital right now. We've seen that yep. play out over the last couple of years. And yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just a consistent you know, fight to keep real wages up or to keep corporate profits up. Yeah, and it's and it's one or the other. I mean, I think that's one yeah. of the things that came out of that IMF paper that it's one or the other. Either there's going to continue to be a very tight labor market. And what the Axios study showed, or the article showed is just that year over year to 2021 to 2022 and from 22 to 23, there is a labor movement that is starting to build. And it's building outside of the traditional manufacturing world. It's it's happening in more services and even intellectual capital businesses. And in a tight labor market, one would guess that that would continue. It's certainly happening in the UK and it's happening in Europe as well. So I just think that's that's something to keep an eye on, that unionization is still near multi-decade lows. But as that trend, it'll be interesting to see if that trend reverses. I think it's an important risk because I think it really could start to get just more energy. It, as it grows, it should feed upon itself. And in a super tight labor market where, as you say, labor's been losing out to capital for a long time, and there's an awareness of that among young people, among young people in the service economy, I think you'll see more and more unionization. And I think you have companies uh, that can't export the jobs, they're service jobs, you can't bring in scab workers because there aren't replacement workers available, you're going to have to deal with unionization. I, I think it's a reality, and I think it continues to grow from here. Yeah, and it's happening in areas that would have otherwise been considered niche, like adjunct professors at universities, for example. Sure. You know, so it's not something we think of the hard hats. I mean, although there's certainly that going on, but it's uh, much broader, broader pushes for wage increases across the whole segments of jobs. That's pretty interesting to see. Yes. 
And I think it continues. Why wouldn't it? Why wouldn't it in a structurally tight labor market? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's what we got for today, Tim. Is there anything maybe we we should bring up that we we missed? You know, I, I just think one driver of this economy that that I think has been overlooked has been, you know, we talk about the long and variable lags of Fed policy, but there's also long and variable lags to a lot of fiscal policy. And, you know, the pandemic era policy of the CHIPS Act and the IRA and some of these infrastructure bills, I mean, those are private public partnerships. Those are public funds that are stimulating massive private investment. The investment in manufacturing construction, the construction of manufacturing plants, is absolutely off the charts. And it's mostly off the charts in electronics. And that, you know, look, the libertarians don't like it. The libertarians find it a distortion. But in a a world of technological competition, I think it probably makes sense as an investment to be building fabs and all of the electronic components that go with building technology, building hardware. So people shouldn't sleep on how much of a benefit we are going to continue to get from all of that public-private investment that is going into growing the manufacturing base. And don't forget, there's going to be workers for all those manufacturing facilities, and we still don't know where they're coming from. No, I mean, and then there's always going to be a PR element to where this money is being allocated. Uh, the president recently stated that $40 billion was going to, you know, more or less ensure internet access, you know, throughout the country. And then, I mean, then also when you bring up kind of the laissez-faire argument in terms of this R&D, I saw an interview with TJ Rogers recently. He used to be the CEO of Cypress, which is a major semiconductor. Sure. And, you know, he was, didn't really have a very, in my sense, compelling answer. It's just, We've taken a hands-off approach on semiconductors for a long time, and then if that's to our benefit, then why have we lost out so much to South Korea and Taiwan and China, which which obviously haven't, you know, over the past well, few decades. Well, so. We seeded the manufacturing. We made we yeah. made that decision that you people would yeah. rather be in capacity light businesses and let the let the manufacturing go. Don't forget, T.J. Mm-hmm. Rogers now runs a, a battery company that just signed a deal. This stock, his stock, is up a ton today. Uh, I'm not going to mention the company because they got a manufacturing deal with the Department of Defense. So he shouldn't be too unhappy <laughs> about federal government yeah. assistance. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for our listeners and subscribers. We'll be off next week as it's the fourth, but we'll be back the week after. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WellFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WellFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WellFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WellFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.